Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Didsbury is uh, generally thought of as quite an affluent suburb in South Manchester. In 2012, two guys living in Didsbury decided to write a comic tribute to their neighbourhood, which was called, I Think We're in Didsbury. It's uh, to the tune, I Think We're Alone Now, for those of you who can remember that one. The song pokes fun at the lifestyle choices of aspirational people. Here are some lines from it. Children behave, that's what mums say in the cheese hamlet. There's no duck pate, well I'll have a brie and rocket sandwich. Running just as fast as I can, training for another 10k run. I see a therapist because I'm so meek. I started Bikram yoga and I have microdermabrasion twice a week. I think we're in Didsbury. There doesn't seem to be any real men. I think we're in Didsbury. They're making patchwork quilts and they're learning Zen. The song goes on. I think we're in Didsbury. A tiny one-bed flat costs a million pounds. I think we're in Didsbury. I can't park my car outside my own house. I think we're in Didsbury. I just saw a man in a turquoise blouse. I, th- I, th- I think I'm Nigella. I'm making chocolate tort in my dressing gown. Now, I don't want to knock Didsbury here today. I used to live there, and I never made chocolate tort in my dressing gown. But right at the end of the song is a line that cuts really deep, and it's very insightful. They say, I eat at the Lime Tree restaurant. I order pink champagne, then I sit outside. I hope people see me. Oh, please see me. I need them all to see how I love my life. I need them all to see how I love my life. You see what that's saying? It's saying that a lot of our choices, from the clothes we wear, to the places we shop, to the restaurants we sit in, to the political commitments we have, uh, to where we want to be seen, are driven by the approval of other people. I need them to see how I love my life. In other words, I need the regard of other people if I'm going to be somebody. Now, with this, the two writers, Matthew and Martin, have, I think, identified one of the idols of Manchester. It's the idol of approval. It says this, If I can gain the good opinion of people who matter, then I will know I really am someone. And this idol creates a deep concern with image and reputation. A lot of Mancunians, old and new, often need to be seen to back the right cause, to listen to the right music, to wear the right clothes, to read the right newspaper. I need them all to see how much I love my life. It's all about justification. Now, can you see any of that in your own heart? Maybe you work very hard to justify yourself. You find validation through the approval of some other people. If they will only think well of me, then I'll be okay. Now, another example of this from the world of sport, Chariots of Fire was a great film, I think it was made in the 80s, based on a true story of Eric Liddell and some other Olympic athletes. One character was a sprinter called Harold Abrahams. He was intensely competitive. He punished himself in an intense training regime. He was going for the 100-yard dash, as it was called in those days. He was going for the gold medal, and somebody asked him, Harold, why are you working so hard? And he replies in the film, when that starting pistol goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. When the gun goes off, 
I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Now, he's being honest about a burden that many of us share. You want to be someone? Well, it's all down to you. You've got to justify your existence. So let me ask, how do you justify your existence? How do you do it? And you may be thinking, well, I don't really think I do. So let me ask you two further questions. What makes you angry or insecure? What makes you angry or deeply insecure? And secondly, how do you respond to criticism? Anger and insecurity. Here's, here's an example. Having a baby or raising children, uh, are you trying to justify your existence by being a great mum? You know, that makes, will, will inevitably make you very, very insecure because of all the things that the society says you should be doing to be a great mother. How's breastfeeding going? You're giving them a bottle. Oh, really? And all that, you know, somebody sees your kid holding a chip or a McDonald's sandwich or something. The things you have to do to, to be a, a perfect mother, you can't do it. You can't be justified by that. It, it makes you very insecure. Another example, Christian service. We have this amazing volunteer culture at this church. Dozens of people involved in service teams of different kinds and playing music, setting rooms up, serving food and coffee downstairs, setting up, setting down, uh, and, 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 and. So you, you probably signed up to one of those rotors with a, with a, a, a good conscience and a clean, and a clean heart. But, you know, something happened. Maybe somewhere along the line you felt a bit overlooked in your service, or you felt somebody snubbed you, or there was a change in the way that the church ran, and you found your heart actually reacting in quite a surprising way. It boiled over into anger. There's a story a few years ago of a woman who'd done the flowers. They had flowers in this church. Every Sunday she made a bouquet of flowers and put them at the front of the church for 50 years. She did it every week. And then on the 50th year, somebody moved the flowers to the back of the room. And she left the church, furious. How dare they? You see, what had started as an act of service had become a personal justification. What about criticism? Now, nobody likes being criticized, I suspect. But what about you? If you get some criticism, does it stir up in you an, an, a reaction that is just over the top? You lose sleep over it. You get all churned up inside. You can't think straight. You're just burning. You write long, self-justifying emails. You go and talk to all your friends for backup so they can justify you some more. Or you spend a lot of time in your interior monologue justifying yourself to yourself. You see what's happening? Subconsciously, you've built your justification, you're justifying your existence on something you do or on the approval of others. It's justification by public opinion. And when that is threatened, then it threatens everything about you. Now, this does affect many, many people. And, uh, and I want to also point out that Christians who know the gospel, the good news about Jesus, often fail to grasp the gospel deeply, and so they don't live on the right basis. Richard Lovelace was a church historian. He studied Christian experience over centuries, and he studied 
times that are often called revivals, times when God really renewed the church. And Lovelace wrote these amazing words. Much that we have uh, seen as a defect of sanctification, which means holiness and growth, much that we've seen as a defect of sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification, what they're being justified by. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. They're much less secure than non-Christians because they've got too much light from God to rest easily under constant bulletins about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. So what happens? Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce, defensive assertion of their own rightness, and defensive criticism of others. Now you're starting to feel how important this topic is for our lives. The idea of how we're justified is not just as some kind of abstract theological debate. It's very, very practical because it has to do with real people, real lives. If we can get our thinking straight on how we're justified, how we're made right, we'll find that everything else in our lives flows from that. Now in this series, as you can see from the slide, we're talking about newness of life. Jesus promises new lives when you follow him, not just a new creed or a new set of friends, a whole new life, newness of life. We're thinking about that. And so today we're really hitting the core of where you get newness of life, and it's where you find your justification. As Richard Lovelace says, if we don't get this dynamic correct, we will be deeply insecure. He carries on. Consciously, they defend themselves as dedicated Christians who are as good as anybody else. But underneath the conscious level, there is a deep despair and self-rejection. Above the surface, this often manifests itself in a hostility which focuses upon other people in critical judgment. So a church of Christians who are insecure in their relationship to Jesus can be a thorn bush of criticism, rejection, estrangement, and party spirit. You ever been in a church like that? Are we like that? So it is critical that we grasp and firmly appropriate this dynamic of what it means to be justified by faith, not by our own efforts. We want to build our lives on the right foundation because we build it, if we build our lives on our own performance or we build our lives on being accepted by other people, we're building the house on sand. An insecure foundation will only lead us to despair. But there is a better way. According to the gospel, you can be solidly justified by faith alone. Have a look with me at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. This is the heart of the text here. Romans 5, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And Paul supports this bold claim by appealing to two witnesses, two giants of the Old Testament. Uh, The first one is Abraham, and the second one is David. And he learns the same lesson from both of them, but they come at it from two very different angles. 
David was really the chief of sinners, and Abraham was the chief of saints. But they both teach the same thing, which is this. God's justification comes through faith alone. God's justification comes through faith alone. From Abraham, we learn that even our very, very best efforts don't justify us. Only faith in God and his promise. And from David, we learn that even though we can't make payment for our worst sins, God can, and he does. And such forgiveness is received just through faith. So, just two points today. Abraham, the chief of saints, and David, the chief of sinners. Abraham, the chief of saints. Now, look at this verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It seems strange. Paul suddenly mentions Abraham. Uh, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? You know, he's been talking about something completely different. Just imagine having drinks or, or a meal with some friends and talking about recycling or about the environment or whatever it is you talk to your friends about, Star Trek movies, and uh, suddenly someone says, what should we say that Abraham discovered about this matter of the Klingons? You know, and everybody's sitting there going, right, it's a bit of a tangent, you know, and then shortly after they say, um, they start talking about why Abraham was circumcised, and they're going, okay, I think we'll just move on from this conversation. But Paul, for him, Abraham's really important to bring in at this point. He spent three chapters describing the human condition and painting a very dark backdrop. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know just how dark that is. He's concluded that there is not one human being who's righteous, not even one, whether they're very, very religious or irreligious. All of them are under the power of sin. But having painted that that dark backdrop, he then opens a window and the light comes in and floods the room because all is not lost. Now there's another way. A righteousness from God has been revealed and this new way, God's way, is a way of grace. And we thought last week that grace means undeserved kindness, unearned favor, unmerited mercy. It's kindness shown to those who don't deserve it and this grace comes through Redemption, another big word, which means buying somebody back at a costly price. It's often used of the slave market or prisoners of war. Redeeming them, buying them back by paying a costly price. And in fact, we've discovered that the highest price of all has been paid. Jesus has shed his own blood as a willing sacrifice, gave his life to buy you back for God, from God, for God. So in chapter 3, verse 25, Paul then claims that all of this, all of this, forgiveness and grace and redemption, is to be received by faith. And again in verse 26, he says, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And then again in verse 28, he says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So why does he suddenly mention Abraham? Because the idea of being justified by faith alone, apart from anything you do, is so alien and contrary to what most people believed that it needs to be firmly established. You see, most Jewish people at that time believed that salvation would be achieved by a combination of God's grace and working really hard. My efforts, joining with God in a kind of synergy. And the poster child for this way of thinking was Abraham. Poster child. Abraham was the father of the nation, and Abraham was known for being obedient to God. 
So Paul knows that when he says this, a lot of his readers are going to fold their arms and put one eyebrow up and start stroking their beards and saying, really? Are you saying that being justified by faith apart from anything we do? Really? What about Abraham? Surely God blessed him because he was obedient. And on the surface, they look right. Genesis 12, God comes with an astonishing command. Leave your country. Leave your people. Abraham, leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you and there I will bless you. And the text continues. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. In the Hebrew Bible, the original, it didn't have chapter and verse numbers like we do. They just had little... um, Phrases that they would take out of the text so people would know where to turn. And the phrase heading up that chapter 12 is Lake Luca, get up and go. And so he did. Amazing obedience, just as the Lord had told him. Wow, staggering. Not only that, but as he went, the promise of God took decades in fulfillment. He still obeyed and God eventually gave him, him and his wife a son in their old age. son who was called Isaac. But the greatest test of Abraham's obedience was yet to come. In Genesis 22, which is one of the great passages that Jewish people studied and loved and cherished, God says to Abraham, these are horrific words, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now this is just devastating for Abraham. It's the greatest test of all. All his hopes, all his love, all his dreams and ambitions, everything he's invested in and built his life upon is focused on the promise of God through this son Isaac who comes late in life. He dotes on him as an old man. And without Isaac, he's got nothing. And without Isaac, all the promises of God just look like a complete waste of time. And God then says to go and sacrifice him. So what did he do? Genesis 22 verse 3. Early the next morning... He got up and saddled his donkey and obeyed early. He got on with his obedience first thing in the morning. And the text in Genesis 22 records in excruciating details the journey up the mountain. It's as if time stands still. And it's as if we're walking alongside Abraham, feeling his agony. And at one point, young Isaac speaks up and he says, we've got the fire and the wood here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? It's just a heartbreaking moment. And still, the old man obeys. He says, Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And at the critical moment, Abraham even takes the knife, ready to sacrifice his son. God speaks from heaven. And he says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God. You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So Jewish readers knew these stories by heart. They cherished them. And they have viewed Abraham as the example the poster child of obedience. In fact, the Bible itself draws attention to the fact that Abraham obeyed God. Genesis 26.5 says, summarizing his life, Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So he's very obedient. So you can imagine them thinking, Paul, what do you mean a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law? That's not how it worked for Abraham. So to satisfy his readers, Paul has to bring in 
Father Abraham at this point in the argument. And in fact, the future of Christianity is at stake when these words were written. Because Paul had gone on a missionary journey, and initially they went uh, through Cyprus and up into what we know of as Turkey, southern part of that, and they, they, they preached the word and they started new churches. They went back and encouraged them and appointed leaders, and they did these journeys three times. But every time, some counter-mission was going on as well. So when Paul went to a place and started a new church, usually starting in a synagogue and preaching to Jews, a few months later, some counter-missionaries would appear and start correcting all the mistakes that Paul had made and saying, now, Paul told you you didn't have to keep God's law. Actually, that was wrong. Uh, You need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses. You need to keep certain festivals in the year. You need to obey the dietary laws so you don't eat pork or other things. So there was a counter-mission going on. This is often called Judaizing. They were trying to make these young Christians into sort of Jewish Christians. They thought he got it wrong. They thought he was introducing new ideas that had undermined the whole Bible. So he has to demonstrate here that his teaching is not some crazy new innovation, but it's consistent with the Old Testament. And he finds this great golden verse, Genesis 15, verse 6, which Rupert read for us earlier on. And if you want to see there in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed. Now, the context of that belief is quite amazing. Abraham was getting on in years. He had wavered about the promise. He'd actually written his will and decided that one of his servants in his household would inherit his property so at least it would go to somebody he trusted and loved he'd come up with plan B but God appeared to him and said listen Abraham I'm going to keep my promise to you a biological son will be your heir in fact come outside come outside the tent look up at the night sky it's not clouded by urban glow or by clouds so you can actually see the stars. And have you ever seen that? There are actually a lot of stars up there, it turns out. God says, try and count them. You ever try to count stars? Apparently there's more than a thousand visible to the naked eye. I don't, I don't know. I've only ever seen three of them. <laughs> he says, count those stars. That's how many your offspring will be. You're not just going to have one son. You'll have a whole nation will come from you. Peoples, you'll bless the whole world. Now, at that moment, Abraham has no hard evidence <laughs> to, uh, that any of it's going to happen. In fact, by any human reckoning, it's totally implausible and impossible because he's past it and his wife is a long way past the menopause. In fact, when he told her what God had said, she laughed, which is why Isaac is called Isaac. It means he laughs. But at the critical moment, Abraham trusted God against the evidence of his eyes. We walk by faith and not by sight. And the text says Abraham believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. Now what does that mean? Romans 4, Paul unpacks it. Verse 4, he says, To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. Just think about your pay packet if you... uh, have a job or if you've ever worked or if you're a student imagine you had a pay packet <laughs> think about your student loan no it doesn't work <laughs> just think about pay <laughs> your pay packet you get your pay slip at the end of the week or the end of the month 
it says what you've earned, minus national insurance and tax. Now, there's your wage. Maybe you get cash, maybe it goes straight into the bank account. Is it a gift? No, Maxim says. He's his own boss. He knows he's a hard taskmaster. Is it credit as a gift? No, it's not. I had to work hard to get that wage. It is not a gift. It is an obligation. It is an obligation of an employer to pay their salaried staff. Right? We all know that. It's not a gift. They earned it. But he says here, the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but they're an obligation. But, verse 5, the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So I haven't got any work to do here. God, I can't bring you any efforts. I'm just going to trust you. And God says, here's your salary. Here's your, your, and it's not an obligation. It's a gift. God gives you that right standing free of charge. Now, we've got to be very careful here. This is not encouraging a kind of spiritual laziness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the grace of God made him work harder than anybody else. Very hardworking. Nor is it encouraging us to disregard purity and and, and become morally lax. The New Testament insists that God is radically holy and followers of Jesus must grow in holiness and be like him, personally holy, through and through. So it's not saying be lazy, it's not saying be sinful. But it is saying this. The basis, the foundation of your acceptance by a holy God is not on your own efforts at all. Or your own goodness at all. In any respect, the basis of your acceptance with God is a completely free gift from God. Your acceptance with God is totally free. Your acceptance with God is given to you regardless of who you are or anything you have done. Your acceptance with God comes to you through his unstoppable love for you and his desire to know you and to accept you and to love you. And if you will rest your trust in this God, then your faith will count as righteousness. It will count as if you were as righteous as Jesus himself. So you see, the righteousness of such a person does not lie in them at all. It lies in the thing they are trusting in the object of their faith. Imagine two people going to get on board a flight. One of these people loves aeroplanes, just loves flying and aeroplane food and watching movies. The other person is actually terrified of flying. One person has no faith in the aeroplane, no faith in the captain or the crew. The other one has massive confidence in the plane and the crew and loves every minute of it. They both get on the same plane, They both fly to the same destination, and they both get off safely. One of them had a hundred times more faith in the aeroplane than the other one, but they were actually equally safe. See, it wasn't the amount of their faith that kept them safe. It was the object of the faith, the plane. Paul says, here is the bedrock. Here is a sure foundation for your life. It's that you are loved and accepted by God, not for anything you have done or ever will do, but only by faith in what Jesus has done for you. You can't be more loved by God at the end of 50 years of being a faithful Christian than you could be on the very first day he welcomed you into his family. You could never be more loved 
If you're a Christian here, brothers and sisters, let me say this. You can never be more loved by God than you are at this moment. Because he loves you to the max. You can never be more forgiven by God than you are at this moment because he's already forgiven you for everything. You see the, the basis on which we stand? It's totally free, given to you. So the real question then for you, do you trust him? Do you trust him? There's the evidence from Abraham, the chief of saints, even the one who did all those wonderful things. God didn't accept him because of his sacrifice, but because he believed in him. He credited it to him as righteousness. And secondly, and much more briefly, uh, the other example is Paul wants to prove this from another great hero, King David. Now, uh, have a look with me. Romans 4, 6, uh, he says, David says the same thing. So he's calling in a second witness to affirm the, the point. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness or happiness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And this is that psalm that the ladies read earlier. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Now David, why call him in? He was the chief of sinners. He was well known for this. David was the man who had everything. He's like the James Bond of the ancient world. You know, he has all the gadgets. He's got great abilities, natural abilities. He's very good looking. He has great faith in God. God promises him an amazing kingdom and he gets it. And he's a musician. He's kind of a rock star of the ancient world. And he, is, uh, he beats all his enemies. And women swoon at his feet. And he's just this guy, but he's also very spiritual. It even says in the Bible, he's a man after God's own heart. So you have David, the guy who has everything. And yet, David sinned in the most despicable, shameful, and, uh, and cowardly way. Because he abused his position. He'd been given this great position as a king. He'd been given his role by God. And he abused his position. He decided when his troops went off to fight, he would stay home and rest. Stay in the sauna Stay by the cocktail bar and the drinks cabinet. So he stayed home and one day he's, he's there and all his troops are off fighting for him. And he's lounging around and he sees this beautiful woman because he's looking down from the top of this temple, a palace and looking down. And he sees a woman bathing. So he's watching her and he decided to invite her to his palace, seduced her, got her drunk and slept with her. She's a married woman called Bathsheba and then she got pregnant. So he decided he's going to cover it up. He lied to everybody, and he organized a murder. He organized so that her husband would be in the hardest part of the fighting, and her husband's a guy who really loved David and wanted to do anything for him. Put him at the front line, and then at a certain signal, everybody pulled back, and he was killed. David set it all up. The king. What hope of forgiveness is there for someone who acts like that? Can you imagine if our prime minister was caught doing something like that? I mean, these guys can't get away with the, the old expense claim. Imagine if they'd bumped off an enemy whose wife they'd slept with. There's no way back, public life. But David had grasped something radical about the grace of God. Here it is in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count 
against them. And I wonder what sin David was thinking about when he wrote those words. Could it have been that he thought back to Bathsheba and her husband in that shameful episode and he thought, there was no way back for me. I was, I was finished. But God covered it over with his own grace and mercy. Even your sins not counted against you. So there we have it. Uh, justification is achieved not by working very hard or trying to pay God off, but by accepting the free gift that he gives you. Sins not counted and welcomed into the family. One closing illustration to try and drive this home. You've probably heard of Martin Luther. He was a monk, and a German monk, and he was dedicated to his faith, his religion, but he was uh, completely oppressed by it. And at one point, he said he was captivated with trying to understand this letter to the Romans that we've been reading. Uh, but there was a single word in it that stood in his way, and it was this word, righteousness of God. And he said, I hated that word, which according to the, the teachers that I'd had, I'd been taught to understand as this, that God is righteous, and he punishes the unrighteous sinner. And although I lived as a monk without reproach, he said, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by anything I did. I did not love, no, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I, I certainly murmured greatly against God. I was angry with God and I said, as if indeed it's not enough, that miserable sinners, eternally lost, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the Ten Commandments, and without having God to add pain upon pain by the gospel and threaten us with his own righteousness. And he raged, he, raged, he said, with a fierce, troubled conscience. But he kept going back and pounding his Bible and thinking about it. What does this mean? That God is righteousness and that you can have righteousness accredited to you. And then he said, at last, by the mercy of God, thinking about it day and night, I gave heed to these words, which says this, The righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. The one who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is this. The righteous person lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. He finally saw that although he was lost and sinful, even in his religion, God welcomed him in and accepted him and gave him his own righteousness and that that was a place to build a new life on. So let me finish by asking you uh, this question. Have you been altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates? Or are you still trying to add your own efforts to what God has done? Are you still trying to prove yourself? Are you still trying to justify your own existence? Because friends, it will not work. That way only leads to insecurity and despair. How are you being justified today? This is why Jesus Christ came to justify sinners. Are you justified by yourself or by faith? Let's pray. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, 
but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is counted as righteousness. Heavenly Father, we have seen ourselves in the mirror of your word. We've seen it expose the ugly secrets of our hearts. And we know that we have no plea before you uh, based on our own efforts and our own merits. And we are absolutely lost. But we thank you that you have loved us this much, that you sent Jesus for us, and that he, as a a, a willing sacrifice, as a, a lamb, shed his own blood for us to give to us that which we could never have ourselves, to make us right with you. So, Father, we pray that you would accept us here again today and help us to build our lives and our consciences and all that we do upon this sure foundation that you have loved us and sent your son for us. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.